Hello and welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nikia Anani and I am your host. Here on The Connected Generation, we explore all things legacy wealth and legacy businesses, how you can build businesses and wealth that would outlive the founders and have sustained impact not only over time, but also over space. And we have these conversations with genuine curiosity, authenticity and vulnerability. And this week I was joined by a fascinating and amazing person, Bobby Newman. He is the founder of Newman Interventions and he's a certified drug prevention drug prevention professional and substance abuse counsellor. And he personally struggled with addictions of his own until the age of 35 and even served time in prison. And now he's really passionate passionate about helping others overcome addiction. And we had a long conversation about his personal evolution and his journey and how that's inspired him to help the folks that he does and how he intervenes in situations, particularly with families. And it was a really educational episode and I definitely encourage you to listen in, um, share this with someone that you know this would be helpful for and enjoy. Thank you. Hi, Bobby. Welcome to The Connected Generation. It's awesome to have you. Oh, hi. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Um, you are an advocate for um, drug rehabilitation and interventions and really focusing on turning situations from tragic to hopeful. Can you share more about how you got to where you are today? Well, I, I went down the, a very rough road when I uh, a lot. Well, uh, when I was a kid, I made some bad decisions and kind of went down a path of self-destruction. I, I, you know, like any kid or a lot of kids out there, I like to play sports. And when I was younger and, you know, I, I did grow up in a, a very small town in Southern Oklahoma and I got into drinking alcohol, uh, when I was, you know, 14, 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And then that led me to, uh, smoking marijuana. And then uh, when I went to college to play football, I got into amphetamines. And then one thing led to mm-hmm. another. And by the time I'm 35 years old, uh, I'm looking at, I, I got into, serious trouble with the federal government and was looking at 35 or excuse me, seven years in a federal penitentiary. <clears throat> and that led me, wow. uh, kind of put me on probation. Um, and that led me into a rehab program, uh, where I was able to fortunately able to turn things around for myself. And, um, I got into drug prevention, uh, at that time mm-hmm. I became involved with two drug prevention programs or I setting up two drug pre- prevention programs that ended up reaching over a half, 650,000 kids by the time we were over a 10 year period. And, um, so that's what, and I I was in Hawaii for a period of time for about 10 years. And, uh, there would be treatment centers on the mainland that wanted me to bring people back from Hawaii back to the mainland for treatment. So I got into doing interventions at that time and developed a knack for that. So my pet, my pet, well, I don't know if it's the right term, but what I started out and I liked it educate key people about the danger of drugs, but I have a knack for helping families get their loved ones into treatment. So that's kind of where I, I kind of got, you know, um, not, I don't know, I don't want this down wrong, but pull back into that line of work. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you for sharing so vulnerably and authentically your journey. And I want to really understand and go a little bit, you know, go back a bit because you went from, I was in the federal prison to, 
I went into, you know, this um, drug prevention program that I spearheaded. And I want to understand a little bit more in the federal prison, what happened and what was that like? What was that journey like? Well, when I, you know, I kind of skimmed over my life history there, but, you know, I had had mm-hmm. trouble from the time I was probably 17. The first time I got arrested, I was like 17 years old. And it was for being, you know, drinking in public or something like that. And I you know, I played sports and I liked to do well. You know, I, I did relatively well in high school and went to mm-hmm. wanted to go to college and play football and, and things like that. And people ha- having seen me, you wouldn't have realized that I ha- probably wouldn't have realized at the time that I had a substance abuse problem. But I look back at that moment and and i did um but you know the last time i so i would get thrown in, in trouble throughout the years and it would mm-hmm. be, be kind of like no big deal i mean i would kind of like skate out of it i would i would it wouldn't be like that serious well when i was 35 and i was looking at federal i got put in a into a jail where 80 percent of the population in that jail were going to prison and so the mentality of the people in that jail were different than the ones that you would might run across in a good old boy where I good old boy jail. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good term or not, but where I was from in rural Oklahoma, where you mm. know I would go get thrown in jail and see all my friend, you know, a lot of people that I knew in there. But this particular place was where you know they had people that had committed murder and uh, you know all kinds, of, and they were what you call career criminals, and um, hmm. that was an eye opener for me. I, I realized that if I went to prison that I probably wouldn't make it because of just the attitude and the outlook and the the way they people do things in prison are animal, animalistic. I mean, they, and they, they're also like, I, for instance, when I was in jail with, you know, uh, doing my pro two weeks, I mean, I had it broken up where I could do it on weekends, but hmm. I was talking to this guy. He was a black guy. And he says to me, you know, if we get end up in prison, it's, we're not going to be friends. And he was kind of giving me a schooling on how to live and be in jail and live in prison and things like that because he had been in and out of jail many times. Now, we were sitting there talking and chatting like it was no big deal. But he said, we get thrown in prison. We're not going to be talking to each other. We're not going to be friends. And you better join a gang. Mm-hmm. If you want to survive in there, you better join a gang. And so I was like, well, wow, that's like, and, you know, I didn't. I thought, okay, I get it. You know, it makes sense. But at the same time, I'm thinking, I, why, why would, you know, what can I do to keep myself from <laughs> having to go in there and now join a gang? Mm. <laughs> so, mm. so it was a different, it was an eye opener for me. And a lot of my friends that, you know, I was carrying on with, they didn't get that awakening. They, they kind of went from not, you know, I was always a pretty rambunctious guy. So I would get in trouble here and there. And uh, they never did. And they ended up getting catching charges that landed them in prison. So they had to get like mm. new time. And I, I was able to just kind of skate along the edges and get enough of it to say, look, man, I, I don't want any more of that. And I'm going to mm. try to stay out of there. And that's when I, that's kind of, you know, it, it's, um, you know, they, they purposely were trying to do things to get me to commit another crime or do something that would cause me to now catch another charge and have to be in there wow. longer. Wow. So it was, it was, it was, a, it was like a constant game of, and it was like a being in a cage with animals, really. Hmm. So, hmm. I mean, for lack of a better term, I mean, you know, the people were, they're people in there, you know, and I, but the, at the same time, the mentality is that they're caged and they're, you know, there's certain. Um, Can you share examples of how they would try to keep you trapped? I'm just trying to understand well i'll give you an example the first weekend that i had to do in there i was in there 
And I didn't realize what was happening at the time. I was just like, man, I was counting the hours. Hmm. And I thought if I, there was one guy that would come in there, we were like, there's 20 of us in a room that's maybe, I don't know, 12 feet wide by about 20 feet, maybe 20 or 30 feet long. And there's one bathroom. There's one shower. Well, not even a bathroom, just a toilet in the room. And there's mm-hmm. bunk beds stacked up. And, you know, they went in there and somebody told a, some some guy, I was in there a day or so and everything was fine. And But they told a uh, joke, an off-color mm-hmm. racial joke. And these guys get in there and he said, I want you to say it, say that again. And and they beat him up. And I thought, well, if he's that stupid <laughs> to be in here <laughs> saying things that he needs his butt kicked, he needs to get his head punched in. But what they were doing, <laughs> that was my thought. You know, you're not, if you're not, if you're not smart enough not to do that, then, you know, uh, so I didn't do anything. I was just like, you know, dude, you know, but what was happening is, is they were trying to see who was who because, mm-hmm. I'm a relatively large person. I'm not, there's people bigger than me or whatever, but I was, they're looking at me like, you know, this guy probably has been around the block. I've had my nose broke a few times. I've, I've, you know, but it's not like, but so they're looking at me like, where's, you know, he at there. So they're, they're sizing people up. And then there was that guy and we didn't do anything because I thought, you know, if he's dumb enough to do that, then maybe, you know, they got every right to, you know, beat him down, which is what they did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there was another guy in there and they, he didn't do anything either. He's like, I don't care what happens. And I'm like, I, I don't need, I'm just doing my time. So they realized that we weren't going to do anything. And so, mm-hmm. and they, they didn't, they didn't, they left the one guy alone, but then they started in on me and they started like doing little things like, you know, just like when somebody was flipping things at me and, you know, flicking, you know, like, what are you going to do about it? I'm like, well, I'm, and, and another guy in there said, so they were trying to draw me. They knew I was what I call a week, what you call a weekender. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was getting out. I was going to be in there for 48 hours and I'm getting out. Well, they were in there for, I don't know how long they were in there for weeks, months until they were, and the majority of them were going to prison. They were waiting to be signed to go to prison. So they don't have anything else to do. Why not? Why not just get me drawn into a fight or where I have to like, you know, now I pick up another charge and now I'm not in there just for the weekend. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm in there for a longer time. So, um, uh, so that's, that's kind of what it was like. And again, one of the guys that was in there in that particular cell, the next time I came back, we were in the trustee tape. We were what they call the trustee area. And he was the one telling mm. me about it. Mm. He was the one kind of giving me the education. But yet when he was in that other environment, he completely had a different outlook towards me. He, he wanted me to, you know, and he wasn't necessarily one of them that was, uh, being antagonistic, trying to antagonize me. He was just mine, but I, I he probably, but he, at the same time, he's, it's a, it's a survival of the fittest type of thing. I mean, he's going to do what he's going to do what's best for him. Um, now it's just him, he and I talking, it was totally fine. So it's just, it, it, it's a constant, like, it's like a constant, um, you know, I mean, you, you could imagine like being somebody out in the wild and just having to forage and then your first thing you gotta do is how am I, how am I get food? How am I mm. going to survive? Where, then you mm. think, where am I going to shelter? You think about all those things. And that'd be your constant, you're on your mind all the time. You know, it's not like I'm going to, what, what am I going to watch on TV tonight? I got to worry about what I'm going to eat. I got to worry about what I'm going to eat today, what I'm going to eat tomorrow. That's their mentality. Not necessarily worried about food, but I'm just saying that's mm. their mentality. You know, it's, mm. who, what's happening today? Who's doing what? I mean, it's constantly a, constantly a, um, you know, a game, I, I would say, and it's not a game that I particularly wanted to play. So, 
Mm. You know, you got, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're going to get at least one fight, you know, probably a fight, you know, every so often if you're in there for any length of time at all, just because there's nothing mm. else to do. Yeah. And I'm intrigued. How has that experience served you in your life? Looking back What's that now? now, I said, I'm intrigued. How has that experience served you? Looking back on that season of your life, how has it served you? Oh, okay. Well, I, you know, I can remember thinking to myself, even in a state of drug addiction, thinking how, what have I done to get put in here with these folks? You know, what mm. have I, what have I, you know, how, and how do I stay out of here? You know, mm. And, um, and, and the, the sad part about it is, is those people, a lot of those guys didn't know any better. They didn't know life could be better than that. They, didn't have, you know, they, that was their life. They didn't have any reality on the fact that it didn't have to be that way. Mm. And, um, and I kind of felt like I was kind of stuck in a like quicksand or something and being sucked down. When I finally got out of it, I was like, okay, I, and then how do I stay out of it? And so that, was enough for me to realize the bottom, you know, it's kind of mm. like the bottom staring me in the face right there, mm. you know? Mm. Mm. So that's, that's, it's kind of like, why in the heck? I mean, it's such an insane looking back at it. It's such an insane um, life way of life that I, I can't even imagine that. Uh, I mean, it's like, I lived a different life. I'm like, I stepped mm. through a portal and now I'm like, that was, you know, because I don't have anything like that going on in my life right now. <laughs> I, 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 people see me and they're like, I don't even, I would have never known you even had a drug problem. I'm like, well, and then, because we just, we're pretty, we're pretty, uh, you know, laid back. Mm. Very, we have peaceful, we have a lot of peace in our life. So. And I want to know, why do you think you had an addiction problem? Why, why why do I think I had you, one? Why yeah, because you said you started drinking at sixteen and then you progressively moved into harder substances and why do you think um I just to because I wanna understand, you know, um what led you there and then how you felt and and was how did you feel in those moments when you were addicted and how were you thinking? Like what was plaguing you? Like what were you wrestling with? I wanna just understand that a bit better. Well, yeah, some, you know, a lot of folks are dealing with some sort of trauma, you know, and I, I feel like it was a insecurity feeling or, you know, maybe I just maybe, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. It, it was like it, there was a social acceptance with sub with alcohol, for sure. People mm -hmm. would go to parties and that's what we did was drink. And so there was a social acceptance. And if you, you know, so you could go there and be part of that group. Now I could go and play football. And I could be part of that group or I could be, you know, a lot of times it, <laughs> a few of us were in the same participating in both. But um, I think that it was a lot of like life. I look back at that time and my life was very confusing. Mm. I didn't know a lot of, you know, I, I, and I was looking at folks for examples of how to live life. And I, there were certain things that I just couldn't grasp for mm. myself. So mm. drinking and smoking, drinking drugs was a way out of that. You know, I, I asked that I, but, but looking at my life, I had a pretty good life. I mean, I had a, I had a car to drive. I lived in it. We built a new home when I was like 15, 14, 15. Uh, we had a swimming pool in the backyard. You know, we, we had to put a lot, we, we did a lot of the work ourselves, but we had nice things. I mean, you know, mm. I had motorcycles and horses and stuff like that. And so it wasn't like a lack of like, you weren't deprived, but there was something. No, 
but there was yeah. something missing surely that you were yeah. looking for yeah and what would you say that was i think it was self-confidence and i think it was i think it was confidence and a, and a, a, a direction in life mm. I, I feel like if i had a direction in life about a path that i wanted to go down and reach and a goal that i wanted to reach for sure mm. then i would have been less likely to abuse mm. drugs or alcohol that would have t- prevented me from reaching that goal mm. so mm. powerful you know i mean it's kind of like a you know you 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 see um you know i always look think about that you know fish on finding nemo that the the, the one that played by uh, ellen <laughs> you know dory i think's her name mm-hmm. um you know she's swimming around kind of lost the whole time and go, oh you know short-term memory oh well there's a shiny object and she gets all intrigued with that and it's the same thing with with kids as they get they're less likely to, you know, have that happen if they have goals and ambitions and are, you know, um, what the, what they want to do in their life. Now there, and there was no way I could plan out what I wanted to do. I couldn't put my finger on what I wanted to do with my life. I, I just, mm-hmm. you know, I graduated high school, you know, I did had relatively decent grades. I mean, considering I went to college, you know, and, but I still was using drugs and, and mm-hmm. smoking weed and things like that. It, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't focused on, you know, like if you're like in a, playing a game, you're focused on scoring the ball, scoring the goal or, or running the touchdown or doing, you know, whatever. I wasn't, I didn't have a goal to try to score in life. Mm. So you see what I'm mm. saying? So that's a powerful metaphor and imagery. You didn't have a goal to score in life. And that was really what led to that hollowness and why you were, um, you know, addicted to drugs. Thanks for, thanks for being so open and sharing that. And so yeah, you then went through um, your awakening moment and your intervention. Just talk us through that journey as well. Well, it came down to where, you know, I was had, had was smart enough when I when I got, I was running a crew. I was actually a supervisor in a sheet metal shop and I was running a crew and I was out on the job site looking to check on the guys and make sure they had what they needed. And um, I got pulled over by the MPs and picked up the charge and I was smart enough to walk into a federal courtroom without an attorney and get seven years reduced down to two weeks and 300,000 in fines reduced down to 2,500 all without an attorney. But then I was stupid enough to keep violating my probation, which was only six months. Um, I was stupid enough to keep violating my probation uh, to where I then violated three times. And so that's what, and then my, so then I had, I took my dad with me the last time I had to report in the, the U.S. Marshal Service called, was, was looking for me and they said, come in, come to court. Mm-hmm. I went back to court and the, the, the prosecutor was really mad at me at that time because he had given me such a sweet deal and because he liked me and then I kept screwing it up. And so he was really mad at me and he, he told me, he said, you, you come in here again, you violate again, you're going to prison. That's it. There's no, you're going up, you're going to do full, you know, every bit of it because I'm, you know, he was hot. And mm-hmm. uh, so I'm like, okay, I blew it off and I didn't really pay it. And I had to do four days left on my two weeks. So I went in for the four days and uh, my, my, my sister and my dad came to meet me with the day I got out of jail. And they, they, they said, well, we, we want to talk to you. And they were, mm-hmm. So they wanted to take me to get something to eat. I said, so I, they said, and I thought, oh, okay. So it's get out of jail, family day. All of, You know, they both driven several hours to come over there where I was in jail at. And I think, oh, well, what's going on here? And they broke out the brochure for the rehab program. And, and I told him, no, I said, no, I, I don't need to go. I've got, you know, I, I, all I got to do is go to work every day. I got to stop hanging out with these friends. I got to, you know, I gave him all the answers that I've heard a million times since then. Mm-hmm. And I went out uh, over the next two weeks, I relapsed again. And then I, um, you know, uh, 
got arrested one more time. I got a car wreck, overdosed. Mm. And then I finally uh, came crawling back to my dad's house because I had a drug test the next day and I knew I was going to fail it. I said, I'm, I'm going to fail the test. And he's like, so we decided, we devised a plan to go to, to the place to take the test 30 minutes before they closed. So I could get in the door, take the test and then leave and then go straight to the rehab center. And hopefully by the time the uh, office opened on Monday, I would be in rehab and then we could call him and say, Hey, he's in rehab. <laughs> Can he stay there instead of going to jail? And, and then and that, then that worked. So that was the intervention that caused me to go into uh, rehab. But I still, and they told me, it's okay. As long as he stays there, we're good. Just, you know, send us progress reports and, but tell him not to leave until his probation is over. He needs to stay right there. And uh, wow. so but then halfway through the program, I, I actually re- was running across some underlying, you know, my own what, transgressions or the, the inner demons or the guilt came sticking mm. me in the face and scared me in the face. And I, I wanted to leave. And mm. even though I was facing going to prison, I still couldn't face my, you know, what I had done. And so I uh, felt terrible about it. I felt I felt like the worst person ever. And, uh, so, and I remember that and thinking, you know, I was able to push through that, what I call a wall of fire at mm-hmm. the insistence of the people on the program, they kept working with me and they kind of helped me through that. And when I did that, that was like, I was so relieving. I was like, Oh, you know, I, I felt so good at that point that I knew I wasn't going to go back to that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, but it took that amount of pressure to get me to go through that process or, you know. I would have kept dodging it. I kept being pushed away and I wouldn't have done it. So mm, Powerful. You know. And then you then went on from, you know, going through this rehabilitation yourself to now being a champion and educator and an advocate to see others um, go through drug and alcohol rehabilitation. You've educated more than a hundred thousand youth on uh-huh. dangers of drug abuse. That's phenomenal. You know, the, the, thank you. I, uh, you know, we actually, you know, uh, have done about 135,000 people and, you know, tonight, when I was keeping track of it and then, uh, our programs that we reached, reached over half a million, oh, 650,000, I think. And it was approved by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration as an evident, evidence-based program. So I was able to be involved in that. And, you know, that's a big moment. And, you know, I, I go through these battles with these guys, uh, you know, trying to get them into treatment. It's a lot easier to keep a kid off drugs than it is to get somebody off drugs after they've been using for a while. So, uh, so, but I, I, I go through this process and, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a one of a, one at a time thing, but I, I just did, uh, I just did an intervention about three years ago uh, on a girl that the family hadn't seen in two weeks. And I went up there and I'm trying to, there's a mother who's, this is her only child. And, her daughter, they're very close. The father died when he, she was four years old. And she said, I haven't seen her in two weeks. She's, you know, the girl had gotten this inheritance with a lot of money and the, a boyfriend had her and, you know, was they were draining the money and using drugs. And I was able to go out and find the girl. And also we get her away and intervene on her and, and, and get her into a rehab program. And, you know, she's still clean today. She's now going to, back to school. She's working. She's doing well. And, you know, they'll all tell you that, you know, if it hadn't been for you, I, I w- it wouldn't have happened, which it might have. But, you know, she was really, really close to 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 uh, when she by the time that she arrived to the treatment center, she they told her that you probably wouldn't last another 24, 48 hours because of the wow. condition of the body. So it was, wow. um, you know, the stuff like that is is uh, 
very rewarding. And then when they come back and tell you, you know, and, mm. and that's not why you do it. I mean, you do it to, to because, you know, it needs to be done. And, and uh, mm. but still, it's great to, you know, people to come back and you can look and see that, hey, I made a difference. So powerful. And, you know, the audience here are families, family business owners, but ultimately members of families. And if they have someone in their family that's grappling with addiction, what what would you recommend they do? How do they approach this? What steps should they take? Or maybe you can share a couple other examples that you've helped folks navigate. Well, you know, um, that is like, for me, my family is, uh, you know, they, I, I'm just so grateful that I had family that were not able, not only able to help me, but were willing to help me. You know, I'm mm. so grateful that I had the people, you know, in my corner that were there for me that, you know, and, <clears throat> and sometimes people don't, don't want to, um, you know, confront something because of what they might fear as getting pushback, but, mm. um, from the family or other folks in the family saying, Oh, he's never going to change or, you know, Oh, you know why he's just, you know, and they don't realize that once somebody becomes drug addicted to drugs and alcohol, they're they're The drugs and alcohol are doing the thinking for them. You know, they're not, they're mm. not the one. It's not rational thought that's happening with this person. You know, hmm. you know, rational thought is, you know, putting a well-defined plan together that is going to do a number uh, fundamentally do some things that will, produce something that will be positive, a positive change. And most of the time, people that are addicted to drugs aren't willing to do that. Go, they'll always undercut what they actually need to do. So um, it, it's, it, it, and it takes people in the family, you know, to help them kind of put enough pressure on them to where they can actually get to the other side of it without having to, uh, you know, so they can experience the, the, um, wins and gains that life, you know, that we can have in life and the enjoyment of life without using drugs. But sometimes they have to have that extra push and which I know I did for sure. So, Mm -hmm. and so I would tell families, I mean, to answer your question, I feel like I didn't answer your question, but um, you know, don't, don't, the wrong thing to do is nothing, you know, Mm. and you know, there's a way to approach somebody (laughs) there, there, there's a way to approach somebody in which they, it could be accepted. You know, where they would, you know, and, and there's there, a lot of times you see a lot of signs that things are going badly. And we always start to think that we can correct these problems, like they'll lose their job or they, you know, mm-hmm. divorce or they stop doing things that they normally would do that were being around the family. They start showing up for family events or, you know, they, they they're, so they're on the path of going of destruction. And unfortunately, so usually something has to happen that's very uh, an adversity of some sort. Something bad has to happen to that person to cause them to say, oh, I need to correct this and get back on the path. Hmm. Well, we, we, why do we need to wait till something bad happens to this person before we, you know, can try to get them back on the path? It, it, it could come in the form of a conversation or, or, you know, just sitting down and having a heart to heart and saying, hey, man, we, we, we're noticing something's going on. Hmm. And, uh, you know, we want to, we want to talk about it. And then, and then, cause especially if they're asking you for money, they're asking you for money and support, you know, now you got to go hire a lawyer, you got to fix their car, they got fines. None of that is going to, paying for any of that is not going to solve that problem. The problem mm. needs to be solved first. It's like I told my 30 year old son I, when he was a teenager, I said, don't, if you get a ticket, you get, you wreck your car for, or, you know, get thrown in jail, don't call me. <laughs> cause I'm not, I won't, I'm not going to help you with any of those things. 
Mm. My family helped me out with that stuff for years, and it never stopped me from doing it again. Mm. So, mm. so well, fundamentally, that's not a successful action. Now, I've helped him do some things, you know, when he was doing well. I supported him in things that were going well, not for, you know, those type of things. And he, fortunately, he, he did make some mistakes as a kid, but he, fortunately, he got himself squared away, and and he, he takes, you know, he does really well. So fantastic. Yeah. And I, I was just curious, and as you was talking about how what you would say to the families and how they can help their loved one, I was just curious, what would you say to your younger self now, now that you've what what how would you have tried to reach you then just in case there are any listeners that are grappling with addiction themselves and may not have maybe it's not so bad that the family members have seen the signs to even know that there's an issue right um what 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 would you how could you have reached yourself then i would i would definitely be tell my younger self to look who i'm surrounding myself with hmm. You know, imagine where the people that I'm hanging out with today are going to be in five or 10 years. You know, just really imagine where they're going to be. And, and, then, and then look for myself and go, okay, where am I going to be in five, in five years? Mm. And I would be around the people that are going to really m- motivate me to do a lot better. Mm. You know, on the, that's what I, you know, and, and it's like my grandmother used to say to me, you are who you run with. Mm. And that statement is you are, you are who you are around and you're probably in the middle of the pack. <laughs> so yeah, you you're to, probably the, the mean, you're probably the average. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, you're in the middle of the pack. So if it's going, if you're around a bunch of numbskulls, guess what? You're a numbskull. <laughs> so Grandma was clever. Bunch, she was very smart. I'm, the older <laughs> I get, the smart I realize how smart that lady was. Yeah, and I would go back and give my grandmother a big, big hug. <laughs> so, <laughs> because she told me all kinds of little tidbits of things like that, and uh, you know, it comes down. And then also the other thing that I, I would um, tell myself is that if you want to have certain people in your life, if you let's say that first it's like a girl dating a certain type of girl, mm. then you have to be the type of person that a girl like that would want to date. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. was the part. Of, that was another piece of thing. Uh, <laughs> they were just automatically supposed to, well, you know, you have to be that. You have, if you want that type of person, you have to be the type of person that person would want. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's how that works. <laughs> so, um, and it, uh, to be honest with you, some of the girls that I went out with that were super nice, and you know, motivated, and and, and I, for the life of me, I look back. I'm like, why the heck would they want to go out with me at the time? Because I had mm. nothing to offer. I, I didn't really have anything, you know, other than maybe a good time or a laugh and a joke. And you know, we could have we'd have a good we'd have fun. I mean, it would you know, even if it were just you know hanging out. But that was about it. I didn't have a lot of I wasn't bringing a lot to the table. So. Mm. That's what I would. I have something to offer and be more respectful and and uh, and and choose your friends better. So and be a better person. So awesome, awesome. And I want to talk a little bit more about the interventions that you you do. And um, you say that you know how to cut through the emotion and confusion and create um, and and establish ground rules to make the intervention a success. Can you talk through your your method and how you work with folks? Well, you know, you go into an intervention with an exact plan and you lay it out to where you expect, you know, you go over every scenario and, you know, that involves me asking a lot of questions and find out who's who, what's what, 
and then, you know, and then formulating a plan from there. You know, I, uh, you know, I had a girl in LA, um, that, you know, and, and telling, knowing what to expect, knowing this is, these things could happen. And, and every mm-hmm. time somebody tells me, oh, well, this, they're not going to do this and not going to do that. I'm like, more than likely they're going to do it. You always have to expect the unexpected. If you don't prepare yourself for the worst case scenario, then you go in unprepared. And, uh, you mm-hmm. know, I've had people jump out of three story windows before. Mm-hmm. I've had them do all kind. I've had, you know, I have lots of things that I can. And, but all, at the same time, we were ready for it. You know, when it happened, we were like, okay. Now that that's happened, this is what we do. And I've had people tell me on the way to treatment, they say, oh, well, it's like you guys knew what I was going to do before I did it. <laughs> well, there's I a good reason know. for that. I, I, sorry, I want to take you back. What did you do when someone was going to jump out the window? How? Well, you know, that particular guy was super, super high on methamphetamine. He was in Oakland, California, and he we finally showed up. We'd been waiting on him to come over. And he finally showed up. It was like three in the morning. He just come in the, comes into the house. So I was there at the house. I was kind of sleeping on the couch. And he comes in. And we just went right into the mo- intervention mode. He went up the stairs. And he sees me. And he heads back up the stairs. And I told the parents, I said, we need to make sure the windows are locked because, you know, he jumped out of them. No, he won't jump out. I'm like, okay. Well, then he – so he starts trying to get out the window. I grab him by the coat. But he had a jacket on, and I, and I just pinned the jacket to the ground. I had my way on the jacket. Well, he starts screaming because he can't get out. He can't. He starts, and he's super high on meth, methamphetamine. He's screaming like a really high pitched, like 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 an animal, you know. And mm. and his mother was behind me. It was a Laotian, you know. They were from Cambodia, and mm. English was a second language to these guys. And and so his mother starts freaking out. She's like thinking I'm hurting her son. Well, he's just. Sound like a like a a screech. It was like crazy, and and so I. But she didn't realize I just had his coat. It was holding his coat, trying to keep him from going out the window. So she starts yeah. trying to pull me back, and I finally have to. You know, I just moved her to the side, and I said, and then he gets out of his coat and out the window he goes, and he jumps over the fence and he takes off. So we just had to wait. I waited a couple of days there for him, and I went around to all the drug dealers that he had. The dad took me around and all the people that he knew in the neighborhood, and I knocked on their door, and I showed them a picture, and some of them got a little out of the way with me, and I just had to let them know, look, I'm trying to do you a favor, man. I mean, the next guy that shows up here is going to be the police because that's his dad. His dad brought him over here, and I'm, I'm not trying to put anybody in jail, so... And then they, so they, the drug dealers all got to where they wouldn't let him come over because they were afraid that it might be bringing them problems. So then he ran out. So then he had to end up back at the dad's house and they had filed a restraining order on him. And so when he showed up, uh, he called the, you know, called the police. And they put him in jail. And when he was able to dry out long enough and come to his senses, mm. he, they said, you ready to go to treatment now? And he said, yeah. And they went and got him and took him right in. So um, it took wow. that kind of. <laughs> little <Wow>. rodeo. <laughs> he, actually, when he got there, he was, they said he was a super, one of the nicest people they'd ever had. <laughs> but he was crazy. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah. So, so I interrupted you. You were talking a, a bit just generally about your process, and you mentioned this story, and then I jumped right in and was like, tell me more. But you were talking well, about that's kind of, yeah, that's, Well, and, you know, it's kind of like you, you have to be kind of think about, you know, this, these are the things that you go in with a very, very educated guess it's all speculation on what you're doing and it's what i tell the families we're going to do the best that we possibly can we're going to do we're going to move forward with the best we're going to put all the information we can on the table we're going to formulate a plan we're all going to be on the same page and mm-hmm. we're going to try to move remove as much of the emotion out of it as, i mean it's going to be emotional it's very traumatic for the family but at the same time if we have an exact plan and like we know what we're doing 
um, then it, it really like, okay, well, this is what happened. So now mm-hmm. this is what we do. It's kind of like moving the chess pieces around the board to get, you know, the end result. I had a girl in California and also in LA once that was living with her boyfriend. And we went out there and the mother kept asking me, how are you going to do this? And how are you going to do that? And I'm like, ma'am, I, I really don't know. I said, I, I have to, we have to, we have to, we're going to have to sit down and, you know, we're going to have to spitball a little bit here and, and put some things out there and try to come up with a plan. I, but I, all I know is I can't do it from Kansas City. <laughs> mm. I have to be there. You know, we mm. have to make a commitment. And, and once we got there, we're like, okay, this is – and as we got to talking, we developed a plan to get this girl away from her boyfriend and over there where wow. we could do the intervention. And um, and that was successful as well. But it, it this little girl, she she little 18-year-old girl, she also a meth, she – Man, she let out. She had a very uh, strong vocal cords. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so we finally got her agreement to go, and and we went. And uh, you know, she called me like six a week later, six days or something after the intervention, and was crying and apologized to me, and said like, was really sorry. And I'm like, you know, it's fine. I'm like, she was calling me all kinds of names and stuff. I'm like, I, I know how this goes. You know, I'm a, mm-hmm. I, 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 I know what we're fighting here, so mm-hmm. I, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so, but wow. I think you, I did really appreciate her calling me. So, wow. I'm just thinking there's a lot that we need to do um, in terms of education, educating ourselves on addiction and helping our family members or friends. And where would you recommend folks can get education? Well, they can go to, um, you know, I have a lot of programs. So there's a lot of free information out there. There's a, for on drugs, there's a program called Drug Free World mm-hmm. uh, that they can go to. And they just, drugfreeworld.org, or they can go, there's a drug prevention program that I, I've got a friend of mine who, it's called Steered Straight, not Scared Straight, but it's called Steered Straight. Um, and then, you know, if people have questions, they can always call me. I, you know, I'm, I'm very, as a prevention specialist, when I did prevention with kids, I didn't go out there and tell them about drugs. I told them how you become addicted to drugs mm-hmm. and how to stay and how to not be addicted to drugs. And, you know, these, and, and not, and people would say to me, well, you, just because I smoke weed, it doesn't, you can't tell me that I'm going to go on and do harder drugs. I said, no, I can't. I said, I can tell you that at the time, this was before marijuana was as potent as it is now. You know, at the time, it was about 22 to 23 percent of the kids that consistently use marijuana would go on to use harder drugs. Mm. So and I can tell you that every person that's ever done heroin or cocaine or fentanyl, they all started out on alcohol or marijuana or both. So 100 percent of those, it's, it's a known fact. So, you know, you're there's a again, like we talked on earlier, the fact that you feel the need to abuse drugs and alcohol, particularly when you're a mm. teenager, there's something mm. else going on there that needs to be solved that is causing the person to want to do that, you know? So, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. honestly, I used to do it for fun. Yeah. I think it was fun. But I have more fun now and I'll have to have the hangover. You know, I have more fun now as, a, as, you know, being totally sober. I don't need to be drunk to be or high or on anything to go out and, you know, have a good time. I just, I, I think it's like it really invalidates your own ability. I mean, if you think about it, Oh, I have to have, I have to get drunk. Mm. To have fun, mm. or I have to get high to have fun. Well, I must not be very creative then. <laughs> you know, that's the reality of it. I mean, you know, <laughs> incredible, so, incredible. I think this yeah. is such a powerful way to end and a reflective note. Like, if you have to alter your state to have fun, what are you 
running from because I, I love the way it just you feel like you're at peace now right in this season of yeah, your life yeah. like you are so content like um so it's it's really to reflect like what is it that's like you said what, what was what was you mentioned like there was you, you were living a confused life at the time there was trauma uh-huh. you had a lot of nice things around you but there was still a hollowness in that season um yeah and so perhaps it's a it's a quest to go find meaning and purpose yeah yeah, you know, it's funny because I used to do a lot of things when I was uh, under the influence mm. that were crazy. And I probably, I don't know that I would have done them when I, and, and they were very risky, very dangerous behavior. Very, like, mm. you know, a couple of things that they could have went the wrong way. I wouldn't be here right now. And I, I think about people that, like, when I was 19 years old, there was a guy that I worked with. I was an apprentice. And he was a journeyman that, you know, he'd been a, a tail gunner and a bomber in World War II. He got shot down at the age of 19, was, you know, had to jump out of the plane. The plane crashed. He was the only survivor. Shoot opens about the time he hit the ground, broke both his legs. He was behind enemy lines, ended up getting put in a prisoner war camp for three years. And I think about people that have gone through things like that, and they didn't, you know, and he gets out, and he, very traumatic, you know, event. But he came out, went to work, raised a family, five kids, and, you know, well, so it's all in how your perspective of things. And mm. my grandfather, father on my dad's side was a tank driver in the Battle of the Bulge. And he came out, was a raging alcoholic. But, um, you know, he, the Battle of the Bulge was one of the worst battles, you know, in American history. So and he was, a, you know, a, in, a, in one of the tanks. But still, he, he handled things a lot differently. He, uh, and so uh, it's, a, it's a matter of perspective. And you're right. If you have to alter your state of consciousness to have fun, you know, I mean, it's like for me it's like uh well i don't know i don't want to touch on subjects that might be uh my three-year-old was in a daycare once and they suggested that he needed to be put on uh medication because he was too hyperactive i'm like well he's three (laughs) of (laughs) course he is that is what they do (laughs) they bounce off the walls so we're going to need to drug him. And they're like, well, you know, yeah. Cool. And I'm like, well, thanks for telling me that. I, I'm going to find another place for him to go. And we always can't handle a three-year-old. That's, I would never tell somebody that for me to watch your kids, you need to put him. I, I would never tell anybody that because that would invalidate my own ability. If, if, I, if I just have to get out there and run around with him in the yard. Mm, exactly. <laughs> and then go feed him a sandwich every once in a while. <laughs> I, mean, oh, I can do that. <laughs> and I'm not even a trained daycare person so <laughs> but i feel like i could watch a three-year-old uh but <laughs> so i told him i said i thanks for telling me I, I feel like you you know uh i'm gonna find another place for him to go <laughs> and he looks at me and i, I told him i said so later i said uh so it, and it's kind of the same thing to back up a little bit it's the same thing for your imagination if you feel like you have to get drunk to be creative you know again mm-hmm. to have a good time you know, and, and that's why I, I go out to places, to restaurants or whatever, and people will be having drinks, and that's fine. But if the sole purpose of the event is to get smashed or high, I'm not going. You know, I mean, I, I'm not afraid of people. I mean, people are around. I mean, I, I, I don't live my life in fear of relapse or anything. I, I, I don't need it. But um, matter of fact, I was tested immediately when I got out of treatment. I, you know, I tell people every time that they go into treatment, I said, now, there's going to be a test at the end of this. Mm. What do you mean there's going to be a test? And I'm like, well, when you get out of treatment, there's going to be a test. Well, how do you know that? I mean, because <laughs> the world is still out there and you got to be ready for it. And I'll tell them my story about my sister who paid for me to go to treatment. I ended up, I paid her back, 
but she paid for me and we did all this work to get me in a treatment program. And she picks me up from the day I get out wow. and takes me to a dinner party that had an open bar. Wow. <laughs> and she, she looks and she says, uh, the next day she well, I wasn't very smart, but I'm sat there and I still, you know, I was drinking tea and watching everybody have drinks and I didn't have any. Big, and then an old girlfriend that I used to run around with, she came and found me, but like the very next day, as soon as I got out, she's calling me going, Hey, I heard you were out. I'm going to come get you. And she's still out there, you know, carrying on. And I, in the back of my mind, I thought about it for a second. I thought, and then I thought, no, I can't do that. So those type of those are the things that you're going to be tested for. You're going to be uh-huh. tested. Your willpower, your, your, your resolve is going to be tested and you need to be ready and you need to be, have made that decision that you're not going to go let it bother you. And uh-huh. that's what I, you know, and that's what happened to me. And it was all inadvertently. It wasn't like I, purposely did any of that so mm. Uh, mm. anyway wow. we have those little traps that are set for us that we just need to be like you know have no i'm not doing that one <laughs> mm. <laughs> don't need that so i know where that powerful. goes <laughs> powerful i have loved this conversation with you bobby like i could sit here all day just learning from you but um if anyone wants to get hold of you learn more about you and your work how best can they reach you they can reach me at uh uh, my website is newmaninterventions.com or they, which is N-E-W-M-A-N interventions with an S.com or they can call 866-989-4499. Incredible. And they, when people will answer my phone. Sorry about that, but people will answer my phone, but they they know how to get a hold of me. So incredible. We'll put, we'll put all that in the show notes as well. So folks can see it. Um, thank okay. you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for having me. I, I've really enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Awesome. Oh, I love that conversation. Um, simply because, firstly, Bobby has been through this himself and come out on the other side, and so has an insider's perspective on substance abuse and addiction. And secondly, because this conversation is just too important, um, families, you know, will typically suffer from issues of substance abuse and addiction, suffer secretly and silently, and shamefully and really the essence of this conversation is just to shine a light on firstly this is so prevalent and these are the practical steps one can take if one is in such a situation and to move from this place of ignoring and suppressing to really addressing and empowering and to equip ourselves with the tools and practical you know tips to put in place because it's so prevalent and as Bobby said, it often is rooted in trauma. And I think if we can gain deep empathy and gain understanding and educate ourselves on the causes and how we can help folks go through it, we will be much stronger as a result. So I hope that was helpful. Um, I hope that was useful. And please share this with someone that you think it would be helpful for. And thank you so, so much for tuning in. Take good care and God bless you.